This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. In this episode, we're talking to Susie Zachman. She is the founder of the nonprofit Better Beginnings, which focuses on early childhood nutrition to help parents and kids establish lifelong healthy eating habits. During our interview, Susie shares her unexpected journey from corporate law and finance to the world of nutrition and nonprofits and shows how pursuing your passion and deviating from what's expected can lead to greater happiness and fulfillment. Ready to get customer obsessed? Welcome everyone to Customer Obsessed. I'm doing the intro today. Aaron, you've done every other intro. That is true. Are you sure you can handle it? I don't know. It's our last episode of the year. We will uh, have made it a year, assuming this gets downloaded by someone. I'll download it and then we can officially check the box. (laughs) So I'm really excited about our guest today. And in preparing for a guest today, Susie Zachman, it really got me thinking about our podcast this year. Um, first of all, Aaron, thank you so much for all your amazing work over the past year because we uh, I never imagined we could have pulled this off. And everyone always asks me, God, you're doing a podcast? And what I fail to constantly remind them is that this could not have happened without you. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Eric. It's been a really incredible opportunity and I'm absolutely loving every minute of it. So let's keep going. And I will say you came at this thing with a beginner's mindset. Just like our guest, Susie Zachman, you'll hear later today, like huge beginner mindset belief, you know, approach things as if you have no idea what they're about, or maybe you don't have any idea what they're about and figure it out and bring your unencumbered brain space into, into a new task or into a new role. And you definitely have done that with this podcast. But when I, what really got me thinking, particularly with today's guest you know, what is the customer obsessed podcast? I know we had a vision for what we thought it was going to be. We've probably achieved some of that, but like anything, it's taken on many different directions. And when I think back on all of our guests who have just been incredible, I'll pose the question to you, like, what has it become? Well, I think that it's always about people and their stories right? Personally, professionally, how they intertwine and affect each other and affect the others around them. And I just love that we get to share their stories and inspire other people with their diverse experiences. Yeah, that's kind of the conclusion I came to. I think originally, it was going to be really hyper-focused on customer experience. And we've done quite a bit of that. We've had some folks on like Bob Furness and, and John Maida, who are truly experts in that category. And we've, we've told some funny stories where we've had bad customer experiences. I actually had one today, but I digress. But I think what it's really become, at least in the first year, is just a story of paths and individuals that have achieved some level of success and uh, more importantly, have achieved self-satisfaction in their careers and in their lives. And it's about learning their paths. You know, Bob Fern is going from the phone room at Greyhound Bus to running a global service cloud practice at Slalom Consulting, as an example. Natalia Watson going from getting her master's in public health to 
writing a book about beer and becoming a podcaster and beer writer and beer sommelier. It's beer. We're going to talk about food today too, by the way, a little bit. So in the holiday spirit. Yeah. And no, I think it's like a story of past and I hope what our guests are getting out of this, you know, number one, our massive thesis, which is shared by many, you know, you have to have an engaged group of people, employees, whatever you want to call them. You have to be engaged yourself to truly deliver exceptional customer experience, to truly be customer obsessed. It starts with the individual. It starts with that individual being in a good place. It starts with that individual being inspired, having passion, being able to work with others. And as managers and leaders, it's our responsibility to make sure the organization is in that state. And all of the stories that our guests have told over this past year, I think are examples of people that have found their passions and found their places and they have not been, you know, normal paths. This isn't something that you like learn in business school. Like, oh, this is, you're going to go from point A to point B to point C and you're going to be the CEO of a company and then you're going to become Jeff Bezos. just doesn't happen that way. So hopefully the stories that we've intertwined over the past year have given some of our listeners some context and even confidence in their own decision-making as they go down their own paths. And I just, at the end of the day, it's like trying to find interesting people that will tell us good stories. And I think we have a good one today. Susie, welcome to Customer Obsessed. How are you doing? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. And when Eric mentioned you as a potential guest and we got to chatting about your background and your work with your nonprofit, Better Beginnings. I was really excited to have you on so you could share with us and our audience what that journey has been like for you. Are you sure, Erin, this is just not because Susie is also a UCLA Bruin? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that, that I always love my fellow Bruins, so that could certainly be part of it. I mean, if I look back, if I look back on the last year, we're pretty heavy on the Bruins, which is fine. Public school, love it part of the UC system, my favorite. So I'm good with it. Well, at first I wasn't sure, you know, why you guys wanted me on the podcast, but now I understand. Since <laughs> I perfectly split the difference between UCLA and Berkeley. I'm your perfect guest. That's right. You went to law exactly. school at Berkeley, right? Yep. <laughs> so go ahead, Aaron. I digress. I'm sorry. Well, Susie, I really want to start off talking about how you started your career, because it's been a really interesting trajectory. You've done a lot of different things. So we'd just love to start there, where you began and kind of what your ambitions were to start and how they've really changed over time. Well, as Eric mentioned, I started out going to law school, and then I went to a large New York firm, and I spent about four or five years there. And then I left to a small healthcare technology company. And I was their general counsel. And then I left there and I went to a large multinational corporation called Bungie, which was in the agribusiness space. And I was in their general counsel's office, assistant general counsel, because they were, they had been around for about 200 years, a family owned company, but were a private company. And they were going public on the New York Stock Exchange. And my uh, experience had been in securities and capital markets law. So I came in to help them in that area. And then I moved out of the legal side. I ran investor relations for a couple of years. Then I went to Italy as the CFO of the Italian and Mediterranean business, and then came back and ran internal audit and then did talent management. So I moved around quite a bit. I did a lot of different things. What was the culture like at Bungie? 
200 years old. Was it originated in the U.S.? Is it a- no, no. And it was it, way back in the day it was started in, I think it was Belgium, but the headquarters had moved to South America. So they'd been in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, and in Sao Paulo in Brazil for a long time. So half the, it was family owned and half the families were in Europe and half were in South America, but a lot of the business was in South America. And then they did have a North American business, but they moved to New York where I joined them when they were going public. So it was a very interesting culture in the sense that it was a very old company and a very new company, you know, it'd been around for 200 years, but it was just going public. So it had you know, a little bit of an entrepreneurial feel in some ways, but also a company that had been around for a long time. So you'd been in the corporate world for a little while. You'd been at a big law firm in New York City. You'd done the tech thing for a little bit. But you're coming at this as a pretty hard-charging female executive with an educational pedigree, and you're coming into this company that's 200 years old. Was it male-dominated at all, or was it already had diversity somehow? No, it was it was pretty white male dominated, you could say, yes. We would go to these senior management meetings most years. There would be a meeting where the top 100 people would get together. And I don't think there was ever more than a handful of women, you know, two to five women. So from what I understand now, there are a lot more women there. I think as, you know, there are, it's not that they didn't want women there. I don't think it was just that it wasn't really a focus. And now things have changed. There's a lot of a lot more awareness and there's a big change in management. My tenure there now goes back nine to 19 years ago. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, I'm sure things are yeah, very different. Changed. But at the time when I was there, there were not a lot of women, let's put it that, in the senior management areas, let's say. Did it ever bother you that you were one of the only senior women there or did it just, it never faced you? You know, I would say in some ways I benefited from it, right? You have a lot more visibility. So you know, while there were definitely some moments that were less enjoyable because of it, I would say overall, I had a lot of opportunities because there were so few women, you know, you're just on people's radar screen. So that might upset a lot of people, but I think that's the truth, you know? No, we had a guest earlier this year, Lindsay Armstrong, who kind of told us a similar story when she was in her early career as a tech executive and was one of the only women sitting there, she actually said in some respects, it was easier back then because she knew what she was going on, what was going on. She was on people's radar. And she also talked about, and I'm not trying to put these words in your mouth at all, but she also talked about how if there was sexism in the business, it was easy to identify because we weren't in this culture like we are today where that now gets hidden because it is so frowned upon. So it's kind of an interesting parallel there. But we talk to a lot of execs on the podcast about gender diversity. And it's something we believe in for a lot of reasons, one of which is, you know, we just believe that diverse organizations perform at a higher level. And I think the research bears that out. I mean, I'm not an expert in it. But for the period of time that I was in the talent management space, I remember there was a lot of research showing that better decisions are made when you have a more diverse group of people making them. A hundred percent. And the data definitely bears that out. The challenge now for a lot of organizations is how to recruit into that and how to stay true to it and how to make it a constant priority, uh, which I think in the tech space is definitely happening. You know, we still don't see boardrooms that are 50-50 or even close to that. 
but I think this next generation is going to get us there. So we've known each other a long time, Susie, and you've always struck me as an incredibly ambitious individual, high intellect, hard worker. When you were a little girl, what were you dreaming about? How did you see your career or your ambitions unfolding? It's interesting because I don't think that I had such a clear endpoint in mind. I was just like, I wanted to rule the world, whatever that meant. I was just always very ambitious, but I didn't, it's not like I charted out this career path for myself. And I have thought at times, you know, looking back, it's not that I can recommend my path for everybody necessarily, because I think the risk is that you become, you know, a jack of all trades, master of none. You know, there's a little bit of a, a catch 22 in the sense that I think some of my success came that I wasn't trained in certain roles and I came in them with a fresh set of eyes. Like I was not trained in investor relations. And I think I made some changes that benefited there or internal audit or other areas because I didn't have this legacy set of teachings and expectations. But then at the same time, like you look at, I do think that certain careers, you need to be more focused. You need to stay in your lane. When I started out my career, it was never, it was more, in some ways more passive. I think I had a screen that said, what are my values or what do I care about as the decisions came my way? But I, I sometimes ask myself, what would it have been like if I'd said, I want to be a CEO of this kind of company and I had been more proactive about charting a path to get there? That's just not how I did it. And I'm very happy with how my life has turned out, sure. but it's, I think everything is very specific and it may not be the right way to manage a career for everybody. And I think also early on in my career, a lot of it was driven by maybe a little bit of a sense of insecurity and wanting to prove yourself. So I was always doing what the traditional accepted right next step was. You go to university, then you go to grad school, then you get a job in a big law firm, then you, you know, it's, it was kind of this kind of a prove yourself external judgment, more motivated by money and promotions and external approval. And that kind of shifted over time. So I think everyone has to figure out what works for them. I'm very happy with where I'm, I am today and how things have evolved, but you would certainly Lots of people have had far more success than I have, you know, on a, an external, if you look at it kind of within a, well, it depends how it's measured, right? It it depends how it's measured. I'm assuming you're not a multi-billionaire, but, um, (laughs) but you know, I love the comment about how you always had a certain value set that you used when you made decisions. And I think that's a good guidepost for people because, it's hard to figure out your next step and whether you're making the right decision based on all the information that is thrown at us on a daily basis about companies and products and cultures. And if you have a value set and you can stack up your decisions against that, you're probably going to put yourself on the right path. Yeah. And I'm also someone that likes change. You know, I think not everyone does, but I thrive with it. And I also had you know, a role model in my mother, she had multiple evolutions. She was a stay-at-home mom, then she went back to school and got her undergrad and her master's, then she ran a small business, then she became a professor. And she always seemed, in my eyes, this vibrant, engaged person. And I thought part of it, rightly or wrongly, was because of that set of changes. So it depends what you want, right? And you have to kind of be self-aware and always asking yourself what matters to you and what brings you 
joy. And I think that changes over time. I really like that. I feel the same way for myself. And I think a lot more people may feel that way than we think, because we always talk about as when we're kids, you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And what's your career going to be as though the career is lifelong and has one linear trajectory, and you're going to start here, and then you're going to end up here. Yeah. And that's just what it's going to be. And I honestly, looking back on my life now, I think that that particular narrative can be limiting and i i would love to you know change the conversation a bit and have it be more open and tell more stories like yours Susie where you've done all sorts of interesting different things and i mean even to the point with what you're doing now well let's talk about that so you're this like high flying corporate executive i remember once like running into you in the middle of grand central station and you were just like you just gotten back from like South America, you were going up to White Plains and then you were flying somewhere else. You had the sweet briefcase. You were decked <laughs> out in like the corporate armor. I mean, and we oh talked for God. like 30 seconds and I was like lumbering through Grand Central Station to my job or whatever the heck I was doing. And now it takes an act of Congress to get me out of sweat. <laughs> but, you know, you, you mentioned a second ago, like, all right, did you at one point have aspirations of being a CEO or whatever? You were clearly on that track or could have been if you wanted to be, but then you just completely took a left turn. So tell us about that major decision in your life, which was what, nine years ago, you said, 10 years ago? Uh, yeah, I left Bungie in 2011. So August of 2011. Yeah, it was interesting. It, there was sort of both a push and a pull, I would say. There was not so much an, an aha moment, but my experience in Italy was amazing. But I also... I think I came into the corporate world a little bit naive and idealistic. And because of various things that happened there, you know, the, the wool was pulled off my eyes and I started to kind of, you know, see at least my company in a slightly different way in terms of, you know, culture and values and, and what you could get out of being there. And then I think I just, you know, I, my sister is, is also a great role model to me. She's a teacher. She was a math major at UCLA and could have, probably done all kinds of financially lucrative things with her brain and decided to go teach in middle school. And one of my closest friends is, well, she's now a judge, but she was for many years a U.S. attorney. And so I had people in my life that I cared about and admired that were foregoing financial reward for much more meaningful careers. And so I started to kind of think about that. It was a combination of naivete being wiped away on the one hand and opening my eyes to getting more meaning. And I think also it was just that I had to reach a certain level of success. I had to prove to myself that I could succeed in this environment. And, you know, maybe I could have gone on and, and done more, but I, I had proved enough to myself that my eyes opened up. And I sometimes ask myself, well, if you'd never had that experience in Italy, would you still be in the corporate world, I don't know, maybe not, maybe, but I, you know, over time, things just shifted. And then I really, I traveled a lot to the Midwest for work. And I, you know, I just started to notice the minute you got off the plane that people were just a lot heavier. And particularly, it was the kids that got to me. So I just noticed that over time, pediatric obesity became something that really grabbed my, at my heartstrings. And Ultimately, I ended up deciding to quit my job and go back to school. I went to Columbia, and I got a master's in nutrition science and then um, 
became uh, an RD. So that was kind of a four-year path. I had to take all the anatomy and physiology and biochemistry prereqs first, and then I had to do the dietetic internship. And then I was looking for a job. I was working with a headhunter who knew me from the corporate world. And I realized as I was putting together a target list that no company was really, or no nonprofit was really doing what I felt super passionately about, which was intervening at early childhood with parents. So I said, I, you know, I did not throw away my career and four years of my life to do something that I don't really feel strongly about and don't think is really in the right area. So I took my master's thesis and turned it into a nonprofit and was doing that basically until COVID and we'll hopefully do it again after COVID. What was your master's so, thesis on? I looked at how basically childhood obesity prevention and where do you intervene and what makes a difference. And it turns out that it's so crucial to intervene in that kind of two to five-year-old window, but it's not so much intervening with the kids, it's with the parents. So I designed a program that targets parents of two to five-year-old kids. And there's a little bit in there about what kids should be eating, but it's much more on how you parent to raise a healthy eater. Because most people know we should be eating vegetables, but they don't know how what they do and what they say and how they set up their home environment influences their children's diet and choices and likes and dislikes. So it's really empowering parents to raise healthy kids. And it's based on behavior change theory, and it's in kind of a group counseling setting. So because it's in a group setting, and because I really believe strongly that just lecturing to people is not going to change behaviors, they really need to discuss and, and learn from each other and trust each other. I, I've seen it over the three or four years I was doing it. It's very hard to translate that to Zoom, and especially because I was working with underserved, largely Hispanic communities that are also at higher risk. So sadly, right now, it's a little bit on hold, but I hope to get back to it. So, I mean, I'll, get, I'll just cut to the chase. How do you get a five-year-old to eat broccoli? Well, so much of what parents do comes with good, understandable intentions, but it backfires. The classic thing is, well, if you eat your broccoli, you can have dessert, right? Or you can't have your dessert unless you eat your broccoli. But you never say to your child, you can't have your dessert unless you eat your pizza. You can't have your dessert unless you eat your French fries. So largely what you're signaling to your child is this vegetable is so awful that I have to pay you with dessert to get you to eat it. So you may win the battle, but you lose the war. They're going to choke down that vegetable, but they're not learning to like it. And the most important thing is that you raise a child that eats the vegetable when you're not around them because ultimately children are not going to be around you. And if the only way you get them to eat a vegetable is to force them to do it, that's not productive. People do what they like to do, what they enjoy doing and what they value. They don't over the long term do what they should be doing. And so you have to make it fun for kids. You have to, for example, you have to keep offering the food. A lot of young kids in this five to six year range, maybe a little bit earlier, start to have food neophobia. They'll look at that broccoli and they're like, what is this? It's strange. I don't know. Maybe they have more bitterness receptors on their tongue. So the taste is tough or the texture. Well, they make a face and they don't like it. And parents say, oh, you know, my child doesn't eat like broccoli. What a shame. And then it's currently, you know, they take it out of the rotation. But kids need to be exposed to foods often 15 or 20 times to get comfortable with it. They need to learn to like it. 
and parents need to be patient and make it fun and not pressure them. And if you think about, if you go to the doctor and your doctor says to you, Eric, you have to exercise. He, uh, that's you happened, get by excited the way. about it. Sorry? <laughs> that's happened, by the way. <laughs> well, do you leave the doctor's office skipping and jumping and excited to exercise? No, you know, you do what you enjoy doing. So the example I always give to parents is I talk about monkey brains and I say, I invite you over to my house and I tell you that in my culture, we eat monkey brains. And I sit you down and I hover over you and I tell you, if you don't eat these monkey brains, we can't be friends and you're never invited to my house again. And I put a massive portion on your plate and I'm just glowering at you to eat your monkey brains. In the other example, I invite you guys over and I say, hey, how are you? You know, might sound a little bit funny in my culture, we eat monkey brains. You're welcome to try them or not try them. I've cut them up into very small pieces and I put some ketchup here. I know you like ketchup. You can dunk it in there. And here's a napkin. You can spit it out if you don't like the taste and, you know, kind of tastes like chicken and has the texture of tofu, you know, knock yourself out. And I walk away and you come over every Monday night and you see lots of other people eating the monkey brains and no one seems to collapse on the floor, you know, and which scenario do you think you'd be more likely to try the monkey brains? And which scenario do we put broccoli in front of our kids' face, place, you know? We love you, Susie, so we probably would try the monkey brains in either scenario. <laughs> but <laughs> no, it's true. There's a great parallel there to how you motivate people in business and, and how you incent them and how you uh, inspire them. The stick doesn't really work effectively over the long haul. It may work in the short term, which is the problem with the stick. You get some short-term gain and the kid eats the broccoli or the the employee does the task, but you're not building long-term habits. You're not building long-term muscle memory into either an individual or the organization to do things that will have value over the long haul. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. hundred percent, hundred percent. What's your advice for working parents in terms of how to shop or how to make sure that the nutrition that is coming into the house is the right nutrition, because we also don't have a lot of time anymore. What advice do you have for them when it comes to nutrition and families? Well, I, I'm a big fan of Michael Pollan's eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. And I think the big key there is eating real food. And then you, then the question is exactly what you said, you know, how do you have the time to prepare real food I'm a huge believer in things like the freezer and the slow cooker and people just don't use them enough. And I think that there's a lot you can do, you know, meal planning where you have a structure where you say, okay, for example, every Monday, it's going to be a two for cooking night. I'm going to cook something that I know I can use again on Tuesday. So Monday might be a roast chicken with vegetables and potatoes. And Tuesday, I'm going to use that roast chicken in fajitas, you know, so that you're kind of, you're not eating leftovers on Tuesday, but you're most of the way there. And maybe Wednesday is a slow cooker night. And maybe Thursday is something from the freezer. And maybe Friday is build your own pizza and you get a whole wheat crust and some low fat cheese and everybody tops their own pizza, you know, or you have a taco Tuesday, you have some kind of a meal planning structure that gets you most of the way there. But it's, you know, it is a challenge, but it's like any kind of a muscle. I think it takes some time to build it up. But once you've worked on it, it is doable. And, you know, never perfection. That's not the idea. But the more you can cook, the more real food you can eat, the better your health is going to be. And you're also training your palate to like 
better foods, more whole grains, fruits and vegetables. In some ways it's so simple and in some ways it's so hard, but I would put my emphasis on figuring out 10, 15 easy, quick meals that are healthy, tasteful, you know, your family likes, you know, and if that gets you 75, 80% of the way there, then that's, that's great. I also think that nutrition is such a big part of health that goes overlooked all the time as we're running around, but health, it's about personal accountability. And that is a big thing in the workplace. It's a big thing when you are trying to stay alert and you're trying to be engaged with customers and you're trying to help an organization grow or you're trying to think really creatively about how to innovate. If you're not there mentally because of your health or your nutrition or your lack of exercise or your lack of sleep, you're bringing the team down. You know, and it's no different than being on a sports team, right? Like my, my daughter swam for four years in college. And if you looked at the regimen that she had to go through to be prepared to compete, that the team demanded of her, and if she didn't, it was on her, it's no different than a business setting. You know, we're, we're about to go and pitch a big customer. Like everyone's got to be on their game. Everyone's got to be ready. Everyone has to be listening and ready to show empathy and Nutrition, I just think, always gets overlooked as being such a critical component of that. Now, at the end of the day, it's work too, right? It is. It change takes work, and it takes it takes some heavy lifting. I agree, but I, I think like if you think of it as small changes, like a small thing, one at a time. I've changed my diet because of my education and everything, obviously, but it's not work anymore. It's now who I am. It's what right. I value. It's what I love. It's delicious to me. I think the mistake is this sort of New Year's resolution approach. I'm going to give up everything or I'm going to do it every day. You know, it's like you just have to understand that you're running a marathon and small changes over what's more important, giving up soda for two weeks or, you know, having one soda less a day for 30 years. You know, you just have to take a long view. And I think that's you have to be in the right frame of mind to be ready for that. But it is doable if you ch take little chunks at a time, if you care about it and value it and set some very reasonable expectations. What about wine? Oh, I couldn't live without it. I'm with you there, Susie. <laughs> I think my doctor tells me I can drink wine just because he doesn't want to lose a patient. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's like a lot of things, coffee, all co coffee, wine, they're all like a J-shaped curve. It's ironically, typically when you look at all-cause mortality, it's better to do a little bit of it than to do none of it, but it's when you get off way up on the right side of it that you're in trouble. One thing I do want to talk to you about, Susie, is just how you have built Better Beginnings, your nonprofit, because it, it also hasn't taken the usual trajectory that you might see for someone, again, as passionate and as driven as you are, right, where the expectation is that you're just going to blow it up and it's going to be everywhere. So I'd like to hear from you a bit about that and some of the decisions that you've made there. It's funny because given my background, I went into it very naively. I thought, well, I've got this fantastic evidence-based program. I'm giving it away for free. It's just, you know, the demand is going to be extraordinary. But of course, just because it's a nonprofit doesn't mean it's not a startup. So on the front side of it, I had to figure out all kinds of things in terms of which I had never really dealt with before, sales and marketing and, you mm -hmm. know, logos and all this kind of thing. And I did it all myself. 
And then on the flip side, after, you know, there was a year kind of, oh my gosh, what have I done? And then it started to get some traction and, and word of mouth. And then it was really kind of humming along and keeping me very busy. I had a lot of different sites and it was going really well. And I had gotten connected to Harvard Business School. They do nonprofit consulting through uh, an organization called Community Partners. And I had been volunteering with them. And then they asked me if I wanted to do a brainstorm for better beginnings, you know, to kind of look out what would its future be? How could it grow? And we spent several hours with a lot of very kind, very smart people, you know, doing what you do, whiteboards and all kinds of stuff. And uh, at the end of the day, I, it really made me think about what I thought made it effective and what I wanted out of it. And I made the decision, at least for now, that I do not want to scale or grow. And it's really for both of those reasons. On the one hand, you know, this is like a group counseling setting. And it's, if you want to grow in the nonprofit world, you have to have outcomes data. You have to deliver your program consistently and be able to say children increase their vegetable consumption by two vegetables a day because of this program. And they continued that six months after the program ended. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can't do that if every single time you deliver this program, it's a little bit different, right? You have to deliver it with a script relatively consistently in order to be able to say this program caused those outcomes. But the fact of the matter is that although I have clear elements that I want to discuss and bring out and, you know, educate people on, it's different every time. You know, you have different personalities, you have people under at different levels, uh, different challenges, all kinds of different things. And the power of it is really when people discuss and we delve into things that are of more interest and gloss over things that have less interest. And so I chose to serve my clients rather than to grow because I felt like to grow, sadly, it would have meant a less effective program. And also mm -hmm. for totally selfish reasons, I love being with the parents. I love seeing the look on their faces when they do something that we've discussed one week and they come back and their child that never ate broccoli before suddenly ate and loved broccoli. And the look on that parent's face, like that's, that's better than any bonus I ever received in the corporate right. world. It's just so mm -hmm. amazing to me. And when you start running and scaling an organization and you spend your time looking for donors and filling out grant applications and hiring people, I don't mean to diminish any of those roles, but for me, I would have gotten further and further away from what was so meaningful to me and what was bringing me so much joy. So at least for now, I, I decided I'm going to keep it small and maybe it's selfish. You, a lot of people would say, well, you should be touching more people or, or I don't know, but that's just, that's where I am right now is that I believe that it's more effective when it's more customized. And I believe that I'm more likely to stay engaged. And my payment is parents reacting to my program. And I, I don't want to get away from that. So I, love it. I chose basically to keep it small at the end of the day. No, and they're your customers, right? And you're getting satisfaction out of watching your customers have success, right? That's huge. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we all fall into the growth trap. I, I talk about it all the time. Like you got to grow, 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 grow. But at what expense and why? is the question you have to ask. You've already answered that question, at least for now. That's amazing. I always have one more question. So Susie, the question I always ask at the end of the show 
is just always around stories and, and fiction and how they can affect our lives. And so I'd love for you to share a work of fiction that you love and what it's meant to you, whether it's a novel, play, poem, whatever it is. Well, recently, given what's been going on with both politics and COVID, I keep thinking about the Century Trilogy by Ken Follett. I don't know if you've heard of those. There's three books. I love Ken Follett. Yeah, okay. I love amazing. My husband, Brian, is, was always very interested in World War II, and I had kind of resisted it. And then a friend recommended to me the Century Trilogy, and then I became really fascinated. So that led to us watching the World at War documentary, which is a, a British 26-hour TV documentary filled in the early 70s, narrated by Olivier, Lawrence Olivier. And then we went to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. We went to Churchill's War Rooms in London. And then ultimately, mm -hmm. we went to Normandy and the D-Day beaches and cemeteries and battle sites. And I just keep thinking about what our country was willing to do during World War II and the sacrifices that were made and the sort of prevailing culture in response to that challenge and comparing it to where we are today and what we are and aren't willing to do. We're being, it feels like we're being mm -hmm. asked to do so much less, yet we're struggling to do. I'm not saying it's easy, but it, it seems like what I just keep comparing it. I just think, my God, if we were faced with, you know, a Hitler today, I think we would be in trouble, you know? So uh, I just think it's an interesting cultural lens that always brings me back to that. Kind of a depressing note. Sorry about no, that. To end no, I think it's actually pretty relevant given uh, what we've just been through over the last uh, couple of months here. Well, Susie, thank you so much for coming on and joining us on the show. It's been a fantastic conversation and we really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great. You know, Susie is one of those women born out of the 60s or she was born probably born in the late 60s early 70s that had probably more opportunity than women that were born a generation prior to hers she came at it with all of the vigor and energy and at the end of the day though she made decisions for herself based on her own values and what made her happy and that's okay and what i fear for are women in today's workplace that are born out of that same just have the, they have the ability to crash through the glass ceiling like no one else. And it's okay not to. And I almost feel like women are at a little bit of a disadvantage today because when, when people, females that are like that in the workplace that are clearly can take on major leadership roles, CEO roles, can sit in boardrooms, and somehow because of the scarcity of female leadership, when we see women with those qualities, we want to push them into those roles for all the right reasons, and they have to make their own personal decisions, and it's okay not to. It's all about your happiness and your value set and what you think you need to contribute to society, which is exactly what she has done to the point where she's created a nonprofit that she runs by herself that is having incredible impacts on families, like really having an impact on families, not like two or three, not like, you know, she's five arm lengths removed because she's running this huge nonprofit and someone in her organization is impacting a family through her nonprofit. No, she's actually doing the work. The answer to that is increasing diversity at these companies. 
hiring more women because you're absolutely right. It's about personal choices. It's about values. So instead of zeroing in on the one out of the five women that you happen to hire and identified them as that powerful, you know, driven executive path kind of person, instead we need to open it up more, especially at the lower levels and encourage mentorship and professional development and growth, but it has to start. We've got to have an equal pool. We've got to have a a balanced pool. (laughs) Right. So, because you're absolutely right. I, I think there is more pressure on women who right now are in leadership roles and are, have fought and broken through and they're expected to take on these certain roles and some just like any person thrive in that type of situation and that's what they really want and then others don't necessarily want to take on that responsibility or have learned through experience that they value other things and want to pursue other goals so you're absolutely right there but the real challenge is that focus on diversity hiring more women hiring more underrepresented minorities. Yeah. So hiring more black yeah. people, hiring more Latinx people, hiring no, more indigenous people, at the you know? Of the, it has to happen at the top of the funnel. Where things start, we need the diversity to be there. Because I even found myself and still find myself to this day, like trying to identify female leadership amongst the organization. When you find someone that's like, wow, amazing leader. Oh my God, female, even better. Like, I don't want to have that reaction, you know, because that's, ultimately putting a, it's I'm already stereotyping right mm-hmm. even though I'm trying to do it for the right reasons and so the two things here she's just an incredible force and personality similar to Lindsay and and everyone else hopefully we've had on this show but I love the fact that she took a left turn and said you know what I'm doing something else right and it wasn't because she was failing she was actually wildly successful a lot of people make change in their life because of failure, because they haven't gotten that promotion or they've been treated wrongly by someone or they just haven't been up to the task. And she kind of went out on top of the corporate world. And then she created this amazing new path for herself that's having an impact on families. That's the cool story. And then the other part of the story is you know, what she learned. She learned about nutrition. She learned about health. She learned about how we stay engaged physically in our places of work and our our places of living. And I think nutrition and our well-being and our physical well-being is a big part of how we interact in the workplace and ultimately how we are our best selves in front of customers. I agree with that. And just a question for you then, if you were, you know, back running a company or a large team, anything like that. Is there anything that you, knowing everything you know now, because I know that you've gotten deeper into learning more about this in the past couple of years, what would you do now to encourage that level of physical health and engagement and activity at the company level for people that want to do that for their employees? Yeah, I think for starters, as leaders, it's okay to talk about it. I mean, I'm not saying you sit there and like, start to criticize people's diets. I'm not suggesting that at all, but I think it's okay. And I think I've seen leaders do this, you know, talk about making sure you are taking time out for yourselves. Talk about making sure you have yourself and your family properly nourished. It's no different than when we were in first grade and they started to get rid of the 
sugary snacks and it gave us fruit as kids. Like there was a reason that that, I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not, but I just think it gets ignored. I think it gets completely ignored. And I think that, yes, it's leadership's responsibility to make sure that the organization as a whole is looking after its own well-being. And that well-being isn't just make sure you take a vacation. It's encouraging people to be their best selves. And if the company is getting in the way of that because we are asking you to travel too much or we're giving you some ridiculous per diem when you're on the road where really all you can afford is shitty food. Hmm. There are a lot of things that companies do unknowingly that gets in the way of their employees' well-being. And leaders need to understand that. You know, don't schedule calls at 7.30 in the morning when a working parent is trying to put food on the table or trying to get kids to school. That all affects well-being. And I think leaders think that it's not their responsibility. It's not just about healthy snacks in the break room. You're absolutely right. There are these kind of unseen or unacknowledged moments and circumstances where you really have to be proactive in creating an environment where it promotes healthy habits, whether or not they're in the office. 100%. Thanks for listening to our interview with Susie Zachman. You can find the books and resources we mentioned in the show notes at customerobsessed.net. And don't forget to subscribe to the Customer Obsessed newsletter for news, updates, and exclusive content. If you're a fan of the show, please leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a Customer Obsessed moment. 